welcome to New York Public Health Now, where we talk about the why so you can decide what to do. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health, coming to you from the 14th floor of the Corning Tower overlooking Empire State Plaza here in downtown Albany, which happens to be a beautiful sunny day. Joining me today in the co-host chair is Joanne Morn, Acting Executive Deputy Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health. Joanne, how are you today? I am great. Good afternoon, Dr. McDonald. Really excited for today's discussion. We are talking about cybersecurity today, specifically cybersecurity in hospitals. And as some of you know, the Department of Health recently proposed draft cyber hospital regulations. Hospitals are sometimes referred to as Article 28 facilities. And what we're trying to do is ensure a minimum standard for securing patient data, which is something I think we all agree is very important. And I'm thankful that Governor Hochul earmarked half a billion dollars. That's $500 million in the budget to help hospitals across New York State achieve these standards. Because we know if we can protect hospitals, we get to protect patients. So joining us today are three important people helping us lead this critical effort in cybersecurity. Colin Ahern is New York State's first ever chief cyber officer. Appointed by Governor Hochul in 2022, he works with state agencies to help keep the state's information technology infrastructure safe. So it's a natural fit to leverage his extensive experience in information technology security, helping us establish best practices to keep our most valuable public health information secure. So thanks for joining us in a remote link from New York City. Colin, how are you today? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me and appreciate the opportunity to discuss this important topic with everyone. Yeah. So thank you, Colin. Great to have you with us. And you're coming from New York City, which is even awesome. Just explaining how technology just works so beautifully. And I love it. Uh, so also joining us today on the 14th floor is Drew Hanchett, the Department of Health's Chief Health Information Officer. Drew, welcome. Thank you, Commissioner. It's always a pleasure. And finally, providing us with a boots-on-the-ground perspective is Matt Wiley. Matt has over 15 years of experience in the areas of emergency management and preparedness, seven of which with us at the New York State Department of Health. He's also a certified advanced emergency medical technician serving locally here in the Capital District. Matt, thank you for joining the conversation today. Thank you, Commissioner. Appreciate it. Oh, Matt, it's good to have you here. And you look fine in the uniform today, by the way. <laughs> Looking good there, Matt. Thank you, sir. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, Colin, we're going to start with you. Colin, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what brought you here? Absolutely. Like you said, I was appointed by Governor Hochul in June of 2022. Uh, and before then, um, I actually taught at Columbia. I taught cybersecurity at the graduate level. Uh, and before that, I was the first deputy director and later acting chief information security officer for New York City. Before that, I was in financial services as a security engineer and cyber threat researcher. And I actually started my career in the Army, enlisting in the Army Reserves after 9-11 and later serving on active duty as an Army officer, uh, where I got to do a lot of interesting things, uh, including helping to stand up the cyberspace operations mission team for the Department of Defense. So really, you know, my background from the military and into the private sector and then the city, uh, when the governor called and asked me to join, um, it was just a natural fit. Well, wow, Colin, sounds like you've done a lot and you bring a lot of experience to the state. So really glad to have you. Can, can you talk a bit, you know, tell us what are cyber attacks and, and who are usually the cyber attackers? Great question. Cyber attacks can really take many forms, but really they all have some kind of intent. And the intent is usually to deny some information system or to steal some piece of data. And by deny, we mean degrade it, deny access to or to 
make that system less available, such as via ransomware or destructive malicious software, to disrupt, for example, to temporarily deny access to a system, but in such a way that that is limited in time, like, for example, a distributed denial of service attack, uh, or to destroy, to completely make unavailable a system permanently, like, for example, uh, a ransomware attack for which the key is not later furnished, uh, or to manipulate, for example, misinformation or disinformation. Uh, and again, the kinds of entities that do this, really, we might think of them as falling into three groups, roughly speaking. Number one, the most sophisticated and the most well-resourced would be nation states. Obviously, uh, the United States has many competitors and adversaries across the world, and those adversaries and competitors across the world spend significant sums to raise cyber forces, to have people and, and organizations for which their sole purpose is to steal data that might be of political or economic or military value, or to gain access to systems and critical infrastructure such that they might later have the opportunity to attack them if there were a conflict with the United States. So that's kind of on the far end of the spectrum you know, nation states. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have individuals. They could be racially motivated or politically motivated or ideologically motivated, operating in either by themselves or in small groups. And, you know, historically, we used to think of them as activists or script kiddies, or there's a number of terms for them, but broadly speaking, less sophisticated, and their intent is to, you know, ideological in nature and generally speaking, less sophisticated although unfortunately that is changing with the proliferation of cyber warfare tools across the internet. And in the middle of those two sides would be criminal groups and criminal groups such as those that offer ransomware or other um, attacks as a service are very sophisticated economies whereby criminal organizations compromise victims. They make those systems unavailable via things such as ransomware. They have specialized teams that negotiate with victims. Uh, and then they uh, hold hostage those systems and in many cases threaten to release sensitive data, such as medical data or other private health information, unless a ransom or payment is made, typically in cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin or other things. Uh, and kind of previously, you had those three different kinds of threats, nation states, individuals, criminal groups, going after three kinds of targets. However, um, as I'm sure your listeners know, and, and many of us around the table also have gathered, that those lines are blurry. So unfortunately, we see more and more of these organizations being more and more sophisticated. And because of the proliferation and monetization of, in particular, health data, we've seen criminal organizations become much more sophisticated. And in many cases, we work with not just nation states, but also those that are ideologically or politically motivated. Yeah, Colin, thank you. That was really good. I mean, you really did a nice job explaining why this is such an important topic. And, you know, one of the things you got me thinking about was, you know, hospitals rely on electronic health records. And I'm a very old doctor. I remember when hospitals relied on paper medical records. And I think one of the things we forget is there was a lot of problems with paper medical records, right? Not just you couldn't read the handwriting, but it led to medical errors. But you can always find the paper medical record. You know, so it's just a matter of just organizing data, too. Like, we do really rely on electronic health records. It really are, is important. And I think when you talk about systems being degraded, you know, you're talking about, like, hospitals really could have their electronic health record offline for quite a bit, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we've had a couple examples across the world, the, the Irish National Health Service, uh, across the United States. There was a significant event in Texas, even around our state. Uh, facilities have gone on diversion. Some facilities have had to move patients around. So this is not theoretical, like you said.
Yeah, thank you, Colin. Now, Drew, it's interesting. Colin was using the terms ransomware and viruses, and it's it's interesting. Like I, I think about I've been a pediatrician over thirty three years, and when I think about viruses, I think about things that infect children, things that make people sick. But these are not those kind of viruses, are they? So when we talk about viruses and ransomware, what are we even talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. Those terms often run together when people think about them. But viruses and ransomware are both types of what's termed malware or bad software. So some of that bad software is meant to steal, as Colin was alluding to, or just disrupt systems. A virus is a type of malware that self-replicates into other software programs. So as you were alluding to in the field of medicine, a virus replicates itself across the body. The ransomware is also considered malware. Um, But in this case, a threat actor encrypts the organization's data and then demands a ransom to retrieve it and to unlock it. So they want money. Correct. Lots of money? We've seen very large numbers, yes, in terms of ransom demands. How do we protect ourselves, Andrew? How would you describe cybersecurity? Yeah, so I guess at a high level, I would describe cybersecurity as a set of protective measures that are placed in, on, and around systems and data. Um, These protective measures need to be implemented from the front all the way to the back, right? So from a front perspective, from a front end perspective, we're talking about things as simple as end user awareness and training. We all take training here at the state. They're very important and really protect you from from the front end. Then the protections move to the front door, access protections like multi-factor authentication. And then we move to the back end. We move on to monitoring endpoint detection on the back ends of our systems as well. So these sounds like things like username and passwords. My passwords are getting longer, by the way, now special characters. This is part of why. But I also heard you talk a little bit about multi-factor authentication. I don't really know what that is. What is multi-factor authentication? So it's interesting you talk about passwords as well and how they got progressively longer over time. It was eight characters and then it was 14. And now passwords are almost passe. If, if, if I may, and the multi-factor is you don't just need to know a password, but you need to have you know, another piece of information to identify actually who you are as a user. So that can be like a six-digit key or six-digit number randomly generated that I have to put it Because this is like when I try to sign into the virtual private network for the New York State Department of Health, I enter my username password, then I have to put in another eight-digit code to then get a random six-digit code to enter in. But that sounds like a lot, but it's really multi-factor authentication so that when I, the commissioner of health, logs on to the state health system, new information technology people are saying, well, that's definitely him, and we know who he is, and it's okay that he's on our network. That's what this is all about, right? Yep. State health system, you log into your bank, they they text you another six-digit code that you need to enter. Um, So it's those multi-factors that that prove that you are who you are. Well, thank you, Drew. That was great. So, Colin, I'm going to go back to you a little bit. Colin, how does someone become an expert in cybersecurity? And I know you gave a wonderful history. I know you were in the Army. I was in the Navy. A lot of good stuff goes on in your career. You've been all over the place. But like, how did you actually become an expert in cybersecurity? Um, not to age myself, but when I got into this field, it was not nearly as fulsome in terms of education or career development uh, as it is now. So really just kind of right guy, right place, right time. Um, I happened to be in an organization that was in many ways transitioning from traditional activities to cyber activities. Uh, and so I got to be part of a nascent team as a plank holder and in transitioning it. But I think in terms of, you know, now and many people, you know, of my my generation, it's kind of the older, the older folks kind of came up via either through kind of army operations. Uh, many were in uh, computers like did information technology or information technology support or other things. Nowadays, there's a wide array of activities, uh, you know, K through 12 to 
both associate and the bachelor's and master's degree programs. Um, so there's a lot of ways to become a cyber professional. There's a lot of different kinds of cyber professionals. And really, it runs the gamut from policy folks who you know write policies either for organizations or for states or for national governments to technical folks that either design information technology systems and make them more secure or specialized cybersecurity professionals uh, that work in security operations centers or organizations or places that are day in and day out, you know, doing the blocking and tackling, the incident response, digital forensics and other things, cyber threat intelligence kind of runs the gamut. Um, and like I said, there's many degree producing programs at, you know, community colleges, at state universities, at private universities, and also at the master's level. Obviously, there's a lot more that happens there than, than there was many years ago. Um, but really, I think it's about having three things. One, it's about having certain kinds of domain knowledge, like I said, cybersecurity is a broad field and there's many different kinds of domain knowledge that's appropriate. It's about having some technical acumen. Even if you're a person that's writing policy, having a background and an understanding of computer systems and networks and how they work is important. And really a strategic outlook, understanding the bigger picture, seeing how pieces fit together, uh, because this is about computers, but this is really about how people within organizations and in systems interact with each other and what vulnerabilities they present and how those vulnerabilities might be mitigated. Wow. So it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity in different spaces in which you learn. But the one thing that I notice is that it's like a constant in-training mode, right? Because as much as we advance in our knowledge and in how to defend ourselves are as much as, you know, the, the individuals who engage in cyber attacks, they learn and, and work around our systems. Yeah, it's an ever-evolving field. I think in many ways, similar to healthcare professionals that, you know, the, the technology gets better every day and on the adversaries and and the kinds of threats that we face as organizations and individually and collectively continue to evolve. Absolutely. So then, Matt, you know, what do you, why do you think hospitals are such an appealing target for cyber attacks? Thanks. I think that's a great question. I think we see um, such a large number of patients that go through hospitals and receive treatment on a daily basis. And so hospitals have such a huge amount of information and data that they both have and then also transmit to third party vendors. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you see bad actors going after hospitals. They are also such a um, public and frontline aspect of our healthcare delivery system. And so I think sometimes the larger impact some of these bad actors can, can have, the more headlines they like to see and those kinds of things. So I think there's a couple of different reasons why we see that. So Colin, let me just ask you this. I understand we're the first state, New York State's the first state to put forth regulations for hospitals to protect themselves against cyber attacks. So what's the why behind that? I think I have a good answer for that. But what, what was the why behind why we're doing that? Why are we the first state? I think really a couple of things, doctor, that, that you and I have spoken about before and that you mentioned really at the top, and that's these facilities are more central than ever to ensure that New Yorkers and really not just you know our visitors and our businesses as well can receive the high quality healthcare that they need and deserve uh, and the information systems that these hospitals rely on for their normal operations like you mentioned from imaging medical imaging to prescriptions depend on computers and if we do not ensure that those hospitals those article 28 facilities like you mentioned, are are doing what they need to do, we can unfortunately see significant impacts to normal operations at healthcare at, at general hospitals. And we can see those operations disrupted and we can see impacts to patients. And, and that's obviously the Department of Health, a leader in delivering healthcare at this scale of New York. 
uh, really demands a new approach. And continuing to do the same things and expecting different results, I think, was not something that either the governor or or commissioner you you know were satisfied with. So I think that because New Yorkers expect their government to continue to ensure that their critical infrastructure is protected from threats, the threats have evolved, and so our approach has to continue to evolve as well. You know, Colin, one of the things you remind me of is like you gave some really good examples. One, our prescriptions travel electronically now, which good for the pharmacist because they can read what we write. That's really important. X-rays. You don't see x-rays printed on film anymore. Radiologists look at information like this over computers. And the third thing I think was just our historical medical information, our problem list, our other past medical history, it's all on a computer right there for the doctor to see. So I think that's a good example of like why protecting our health information is so important. Mm. Colin, thanks for talking about the regulations. Matt, I wanted to turn to you for a minute because I understand you, you, you held the pen quite a bit as related to the drafting of these regs. And can you talk a bit about the requirements and the regulations? Sure, absolutely. So when the department started to draft these, we felt it was really important to work with industry experts and really understand what they felt were good aspects of a cybersecurity program. And so as we conducted some phone calls, both one-on-one with some facilities across the state, as well as holding a cybersecurity roundtable where we had a couple of dozen hospitals that gave us some feedback, we came to the conclusion that there were several aspects that we felt would be important in here. So the regulations do a number of different things, including creating distinctions between different types of cybersecurity events, They require hospitals to establish a comprehensive program, which cover things like risk assessment, response, recovery, and data protection. They mandate the creation of specific cybersecurity policies, including things like asset management, access control, training, monitoring, and incident response. They require the appointment of a CISO or a chief information security officer who would be responsible for program oversight and reporting. They require hospitals to conduct regular cybersecurity testing, including scans and penetration testing of their network. They talk about training for um, staff and ensuring that staff are up on different pieces of cybersecurity, like phishing and those kinds of things that many of us are familiar with. They also talk um, fairly in-depth about, again, incident response plans and ensuring that if a facility is subject to a breach or a cybersecurity attack, that they have good plans in place in order to be able to appropriately respond to that attack and still provide Um, that high quality patient care that Colin was sort of talking about earlier. Yeah, thank you, Matt. That was great. So the regs are off for public comment. I really want to hear what people have to say, because quite frankly, I think the public makes our regulations better. Colin, it was interesting to me, the governor put $500 million, half a billion dollars around this for hospitals, which is, you know, we don't always put out regs with money. Why did the governor put out so much money uh, so these regs could actually be implemented? Any wisdom on that? I think a couple of things. One, I think that Healthcare is obviously unique uh, within critical infrastructure for many reasons. And social safety net facilities, other facilities, um, you know, already receive significant financial support from the state, from the department, the Department of Health. Uh, And two, we understand that general hospitals in particular, you know, we're narrowly focusing these regulations to that which we believe uh, have the greatest impact on New Yorkers' ability to receive care. Uh, And so by this two-pronged approach, one, standards, and two, financial support so that facilities that may not have existing extremely sophisticated cybersecurity programs can comport with these regulations, uh, we think will provide you know, second and third order benefits to not only those facilities, uh, but the communities that they serve. 
And, you know, a lot of our conversation really has been about sort of the larger spaces, the hospitals. Uh, Drew, I'm just curious, is am I safe at home? I mean, who potentially could be attacking my computer there? It's an interesting question. I mean, w- without speculating on the kind of type of threat actor that would um, hack a pers- personal device at home, uh, in general, I think hacking is a field of opportunity, the way I think about it. So we've seen it over the past, you know, couple decades move from the financial world into the healthcare world, and I think it becomes about opportunity. Um, and it's it's level of effort and the value proposition. So attacking your personal device at home, what's the value proposition there for a threat actor uh, versus a facility like a bank um, or, or a hospital? No, and I suppose the same would apply to my iPhone. Yeah, I mean, short answer, the iPhone is yes, um, but when we talk about safe, there are varying levels of vulnerability um, of, of devices and systems. Um, iPhones are not immune, obviously, to, to viruses. See, I've always heard that iPhones were immune from viruses, but that's just myth, isn't it? It, it is. Um, but I will say it's it's not difficult to protect it, right? So if your iPhone and your device um, and, and the apps on that, right, has the latest updates, so you're running the latest updates um, and latest versions of the security patches um, and the like, you're, you're in a much safer place. Yeah, well, this has been a really interesting episode. I've really enjoyed talking about this. And, you know, it's funny, I'm here, we're here in Albany and the sun is setting in Albany and the sun is beginning to set on this episode as well. Uh, but, you know, as a bit of an aside, Drew, I understand this isn't your first role here at the New York State Department of Health. You were here a few years ago. You want to talk about what you were doing then and why you were here? A few years, you're, you're generous. Uh, it was some time ago uh, when I first moved back to New York from, from Massachusetts. My first job was here at the Department of Health. I came on a, on a federal grant at that time doing performance management here across the department. So, so that experience really um, allowed me to have a long reach across the department. I work with a lot of program areas, so I have familiarity in the, in the work that they do, which has really helped in my current role. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, good to have you back. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It was great to have Colin Ahern here today. A wonderful discussion. Good to have you here, Drew Hanchett. And Matt Wiley, it was good to have you as well. And as always, if you do have an idea for a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, I'd like you to let us know by email. Our email address is publichealthnowpodcast at health.ny.gov. Keep an eye out for the latest New York Public Health Now episode on your favorite podcast player like Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. Search by our podcast title, New York Public Health Now, or by keyword NYSDOH. Then tap the subscribe or follow button to be notified when we release a new episode, which is about every other week. For the New York Public Health Now podcast, I'm the commissioner, Dr. Jim McDonald. And I'm Joanne Morin. And I'm Drew Hanchett. And I'm Matt Wiley. And I'm Colin Hurt. And thank you for listening.